The New Testament reading is John 1, 1 through 18, the famous prologue to the Gospel of John. You should be able to find it on page 886 of your pew Bible. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Wow. These are precious verses. There is so much um, that we could say about these verses. We, there could be an entire sermon series through these 18 verses. I just want to focus on a few things, the main message of the verses, and how they shed a little more light on the doctrine of creation, which is the focus of the sermon today, and the line of the Apostles' Creed, maker of heaven and earth. Of course, the primary focus of these verses is to set the stage for the rest of the Gospel of John. These verses, um, I've heard it said, function as like a table of contents for the rest of the Gospel of John. They introduce themes that John and Christ will develop throughout, right? For example, Jesus' pre-existence, his relationship with the Father from before all things, right? This is what Christ talks about in the high priestly prayer and his teaching to the disciples. Of course, this idea of light entering the world, right? Jesus later in John's Gospel will say, I'm the light of the world, um, or when we learn about the people who will reject Jesus. Of course, Jesus will re face rejection from the Jews throughout the gospel, leading up to, of course, his crucifixion. Even this idea of being born of God. Well, of course, with Nicodemus, Jesus will discuss being born again, being necessary. These verses function the way the gospel does, to introduce us to Jesus. Hmm. Now, of course, the prologue famously introduces us to Jesus as the Word. There's been a lot of speculation as, what does John mean when he says, 
the Word, the Word of God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, in verse 1. Some people think maybe he's referring to Greek philosophy, this idea that there's a rational principle in all the universe. Maybe. But the most likely place, and certainly the place we should look for these kinds of answers, is the Bible. What does the Old Testament teach about what the Word of God is? What would John be meaning? Well, we learn in Genesis, the Word is how God creates all things. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we learn the Word of God is how he reveals himself to his people. In fact, later, the Word of God is what he speaks to save his people. Thus, it's hard to think of a better concept John could use to communicate who Jesus was as God but distinct from God. He is the one who created all things. He is the one who reveals God, and he is the one, of course, who brings redemption to his people. This is very careful language John is beginning with. But really, verse 3 is where Jesus' divinity is clinched. It's, it's demonstrated decisively. It's because it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's emphatic on this point. How do you know if you're God? You created all things. That's the answer. Everything that exists either exists on the divide as creator or creation. And John has just made the radical Christian claim about creation. The idea that there's a creator is actually maybe not that radical. It seems radical in our secular Western context, but it's not. What's radical is that we say Jesus Christ, the man who lived and walked in Palestine, who never left the Middle East, created every galaxy that exists. That's our radical claim. And that's how John's gospel begins. And he in, interprets, again, Genesis 1-1 in a Trinitarian way. He takes this famous introduction to the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth, and says, in the beginning was the word. John sees Christ in the beginning of, of the gospel. And we should too. <laughs> now, I don't want to miss, though, the primary message of the prologue, though, as we think about Christ and the doctrine of creation. The prologue actually works in a, a form of Hebrew literature called a chiasm. You might be familiar with this. It was a literary device common uh, to Jewish writing and especially in the Old Testament. It has a sequence of ideas presented and then it repeats them in the reverse order. So A, B, C, C, B, A. Often, the chiasm includes one unique idea in the middle and that is the central idea of everything it's teaching. And that is what you find here in John's prologue. If you look, verses 1 and 18 teach us who Jesus is. It teaches us his divinity, his proximity to the Father. You can go another step in the chiasm and you see verses 6 through 8 and 15. These verses teach us about John the Baptist and his role. Then we have verses 9 through 11 and 14 and they teach us the astounding truth that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And that means verses 12 and 13 are the center of the chiasm, the center of what John wants us to take away. So let me read verses 12 and 13 again. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The center 
of the chiasm then is why did the word come and become flesh? And the answer is the gospel. He came that you might become a child of God by believing in his name. This is good news. He came to save you. He came to save you. The sermon text this morning is Psalm 104, found on page 502 and 503 in the Pew Bible. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place that you have appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The, mount, the high mountains are for the wild goats and the rocks are for our refuge for rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make the darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and his labor is until the evening. O Lord, how manifold all your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take their breath away, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who
who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. What a majestic psalm. When I was living overseas um, for some years, one spring I injured my lower spine pretty badly. Uh, it left me kind of hunched over, unable to do almost any daily task without pain. And as a young dad uh, with one child at the time and another on the way, you can imagine how scary it was to think about that maybe I would never be able to lift up my child again to play or put a kid down in a crib. I saw a few doctors there. I was trying to find some kind of pain relief or what I could do to recover. Uh, I started a form of physical therapy there, which is nothing like what physical therapy is here in the United States. But one of the doctors that I was working with at that time said something to me that stuck with me. He said, Matthew, you need to spend as little time as sitting as possible. Stand and go for a walk every 30 minutes. Our bodies were not created to sit. Created. Now, I don't know if that word was intentional on his part or if that was the only English word he knew to communicate what he was saying. But it struck home for me that my body, and specifically my lower back, was made with a certain purpose in mind. And if I wanted to live a life enjoying my family, serving my family, lifting up my children, I needed to figure out what that purpose was and begin to live accordingly. Now, this doesn't just apply to our bodies, though. All creation has a purpose, because all creation has a creator. This is, of course, what the line maker of heaven and earth teaches in the Apostles' Creed. The God we believe in, our Father, is the maker of heaven and earth, and everything in between. When we say heaven and earth, we're saying everything in heaven and earth and everything in the middle God made. And our belief about creation really is the foundation of our belief about everything else. What are spines supposed to be like? What are people for? How did God make families to work? How can communities and economies function according to God's created order? We look to our creator. However, the truth is, we typically look no further than our personal wants, our own desires for how these things are supposed to be. We want to decide what the family is supposed to be like. We will decide what our lives are for, what's best for me. Not only is this rebellion, if we're refusing our created purpose, this is the path to despair and injury, like I injured my back. Because as Psalm 104 shows us 
There is so much beauty in creation that praises the Creator. So because God is the maker of heaven and earth, we must praise Him and be restored to our created purpose in Christ. This is the message of this great hymn of praise. It's fascinating. It's a, it's a poetic account of creation in this case. But it's almost structured around the seven days of creation. If you look at it, you can look at it later and see that. But our hymn of praise for God, first, will extol God as the creator and king. Second, and the majority of the psalm, points out God, the goodness of God reflected in creation. And then it ends by calling us and all creation to respond to him with praise. So first, let's examine the creator king. Psalm 104 teaches us what creation's relationship is to its creator. While I read verses 1 through 3 again, ask yourself, what language is it using to describe our God here specifically? Bless the Lord, O my soul. O God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. Let me ask that question another way. What is God dressed up as in Psalm 104? He's clothed with majesty and splendor. He's laying the beams of his great dwelling. He has a great chariot. He's dressed like a king, right? The creator is the king of creation. God relates to his creation as royalty. He is distinct from the world and rules it. But he's a king, right? He's intimately involved with creation. The psalm declares that, O Lord, with all capitals, you are my God. This is the personal divine name, Yahweh. The covenant God of Israel is the king of creation. As Exodus 20, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord, Yahweh, made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them. So Yahweh made everything that exists. This means he has unparalleled power and authority. This is what sets him apart from all the other so-called gods. Only he created all things. The God of Israel is the creator, and everything else that exists is creation. This is, of course, what we mean when we say God created out of nothing. It's not that nothing, you can't ask, what is nothing? Right? It's not that nothing is a substance God made everything out of. Um, sometimes we think of God putting things that he creates in big, em a big empty space. He puts the world and the sun. However, the issue with that is space is something God created too. And the time it would take to place things in space is something God created too. I know it's unfathomable to think about then what it means that he created, but this is the mystery of his power. It's beyond our understanding. And it displays his glory. He alone is the architect of the heavens. He alone can wear light like a garment. 
he can ride on clouds and tell flames to do his bidding. God gets to do that. And this is very much how the Apostles' Creed teaches us who God is. If we believe in God, well, who is he? He's the Father. He's the Father Almighty. And what makes him God? How do you know he's a God? He made everything. This is the ultimate claim to divinity, as I mentioned in the John reading. If you made everything, you are God. As R.C. Sproul said, all apologetic arguments ultimately come down to this. We say if anything exists, then God exists. Because it all had to come from somewhere. This creator king has absolute authority over creation. What he says goes. He has absolute control, and he has the authority over what he has made. You can think of it like this. Who's the authority of the meaning of the book Pride and Prejudice? Well, it's Jane Austen. It's the author. Who determines what a piece of pottery will become? The potter. Who gets to tell children, I brought you into this world and I will take you out of it? Their moms. So it is with God. He made you and therefore he has this authority to interpret, to design, to rule, like mom. Look at verses 28 and 30. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand... They are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. We can see the utter dependence of creation in these verses. And we can see God's ultimate control over everything that happens in it. It's by God's open hand creation is provided for. When God takes displeasure in any part of creation, it's dismayed. God gives life to creation. God takes life from creation. He must act for creation to exist and be maintained. Creation obeys him like a servant. If we think of the creation account in Genesis, creation obeys his word before it existed. He speaks and it comes into being directly. Whatever dominion or creative power we may have as people, it's nothing like this. We do not have the power of speech to bring anything into being or control anything. We can barely control a pet with our words or our children. The sovereignty of God and this dependence we have on him has implications for everything. Even the world that sustains us only does so because of God's will. All of the world and history moves in terms of God's will to create and provide and save and judge. Out of his sovereignty, of course, he can judge us because he determines what we're for and the criteria which we're supposed to live by. We can pray to him because he controls creation. He can give us what he wills. It's probably then no surprise why people in the West today prefer 
a creation account that excludes God. You see, no society or culture can exist where it doesn't explain where all things came from. It can't understand reality without an explanation of being. Today, the dominant explanation in the West is a purely naturalistic one, right? That the existence of the universe is explainable through purely naturalistic means which we can inquire about through the scientific method. And you know why this is attractive. Because such an explanation allows man to avoid God. And if there is no God, then the throne of creation is up for grabs to whoever is strongest. Authority over my life and ethics is up for grabs. So I get to say what creation is for, what my life is for, what people should be like. As one author put it, the real persuasive power of naturalistic theories of the universe are not the evidence, actually, but rather that they provide us the only viable alternative to theism. Because if there is a creator, we know we owe him praise. We know he has absolute authority, and our ultimate loyalty is due to him alone. This is the declaration that the psalmist begins his praise with. God is my king. The Lord is my God. And no relationship, family, person, community is due the loyalty I'm due to give him. Even all spiritual beings and all creation obey him, so I must too. However, the vast majority of this psalm is spent praising God because of the goodness of creation. This is verses 5 through 30. Creation is good. And it tells you what the creator is like. The human spine, Jack Russell Terriers, black holes, the Smoky Mountains, kangaroos, the planet Jupiter, flowers. They all tell you something about God. And any account of creation must factor everything that exists into it. Sometimes when we read a psalm, a poetic psalm like this, we can think this actually doesn't explain to me much about creation. It doesn't tell me how the habits of, the hunting habits of lions really work or the biology of fish. Doesn't explain any of that. Doesn't give an account of how fast the earth is orbiting the sun or the moon, the earth. Doesn't explain how mountains and their geological formations work? No. The psalm does something more important than that. It gives a theological account of creation. It explains why there are mountains. Why? The source of much of the intellectual closed-mindedness we find ourselves in today is that we think the only kind of explanation for things that matters is a scientific one. Just because you can tell me how something works in the natural world doesn't mean you can tell me why. It doesn't tell me where it came from or its ultimate purpose. Now, I'm not downplaying the importance of scientific study, scientific observation, 
It is indeed a humongous blessing of God we should not ignore, that when we observe what God has made closely, we can bless human life and life on this planet so greatly. But that's not all there is to say. On a fundamental level, we still need to know what God says about creation and what creation says about God. For example, think about your hand. Your hand. Kids, you can think about your hand. You have one to look at. I want you to think, do you think all the scientists in the world with all their expertise, best surgeons, best biologists, I'm sure there are a lot of other scientists who would be involved. Do you think they could make you one hand? And I mean, not a, like the robot arm hands we, we see today, one with all the features that regenerates skin, that takes and works because of blood and oxygen pumped through it, that grows nails to protect your fingers and has hair follicles to enhance your sense of touch that can somehow tell the difference between touching wood and paper and books, that has on it absolutely unique fingerprints that can identify you out of the eight billion people on Earth. Do you think the scientists, the best technology in the world could give you one today? I don't know, probably not, maybe. Maybe the real practical question is, how much would it cost you if they could? Could anyone afford it? No. <laughs> and God has given you two for free, just for existing. That should tell you about the astounding generosity and power and the mind of God. That is what Psalm 104 is getting at. Creation shows us how amazingly generous God is. Look at the ways it says he's generous. Verses 10 and 11. You make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Then in 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, the wine to gladden the heart of men, and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. I was just talking about a hand. The psalm says God provides water for everything that exists on earth. God quenches the thirst of everything that's thirsty, small and big. He gives us plants to cultivate. Even the fact that we work and it provides for us is a gift from God. And God makes the feeble work the sitting at a desk you do, the labor you do, provide for you. Then at night, God gives rest to your body. He makes it night so we can rest. And then he makes it day so you can serve again. God brings so much abundance out of what we do, we don't just get the bare minimum of what we need. We get to enjoy creation and its abundance. The psalm says we get wine and oil Creation demonstrates how generous God is, most of all because he didn't need any of it to be happy. He is happy in himself. The love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, he needs nothing else. 
He created simply out of an abundance of this love to manifest his riches so that you can be happy in him. He loves his own goodness and he desires to share it with you. God created because he wanted to. He's an eternally rich king. He's infinitely productive in himself and it's spilled forward the extra, we might say, spilled forward into all the created existence. He loves sharing his goodness. Verse 24 says, how manifold are your works? Which is an understatement. God's creation is so immense and so diverse, we can only be moved to gratitude for it. We can be astounded by the infinite variety of life and creation and galaxies. But, the truth is, you may not want to admit it, but you're often ungrateful. How often do you thank God for one hand or two of them? We are unthankful for what we have been given and are envious for others. Even though we have two hands, we have eyes which capture the world in a way that no camera can possibly. We have feet to move you where you desire to go. And these things were formed in another person, your mother. Creation is amazing, and it reveals to us God's wisdom as well. They show us his generosity, but they show us his wisdom. Wisdom, of course, is not just knowledge, knowing facts or how to do something. It's the ability to give everything a good purpose and work all things together. And God's wisdom is what's directing everything in creation. This place we live in clearly has a design. And it's one we can't ever fully comprehend. Whether we're looking at the intricacies of the human body, the fine-tuned solar system that allows life on this planet and no other, it was all created with a plan and a purpose. And our claim as Christians is a radical one. It was all created for Christ. You can find this in many places, but I will read Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things, that is Christ, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The purpose of all creation is to give Christ glory and glory to God. Wow. Even visible and invisible. I've only ever been mentioning visible things. There's a whole other invisible realm of creation um, we could cover in another sermon. And this creation, the psalm tells us, points to God's unchanging goodness. God provides us regularity in creation, stability in creation. And this regularity, this predictability of creation, is what allows us to live a single day in it. Without it, we would be lost, truly. If tomorrow you woke up and the sun rose in the west and there was no gravity and water ran uphill, uh, human life would end almost immediately. <laughs> life ceases to be possible without God providing ongoing stability. And the psalm uses the repeating image of water to picture this stability. If you notice, water runs straight through the psalm. God builds his chambers on the water. He rebukes the waters of the deep so they will not cover the mountains. 
Now, he doesn't get rid of water. He controls it so that it provides springs and provides for the animals and plants. He makes the waters useful so that they can provide oceans for the innumerable creatures to live in and the, the ships to sail on. Why water? Well, water plays a central role in the Genesis account. But in the ancient world, water was the element completely beyond man's control. The sea in its vastness was the end of the world as they knew it. Sailing out into the sea was to be sailing into pure unknown chaos. You were purely at the mercy of nature or the gods, or obviously we know God. The provision of rain was not something they could control. And it was extremely important to life in the Middle East where God's people lived. So they ask, why don't the seas ever swallow up the land? Why do we get rain when we need it? Well, the answer is God. He has made the boundaries of the land and the sea, and he sends them rain. Again, it's the theological explanation. It doesn't tell you a lot about weather patterns. And we can still feel this lack of control over creation and understand the need for God's goodness and stability. We can feel this sense of anxiety about water. Some of us have sensors in our basements, worried water might seep in because we can't control it. We certainly feel this anxiety when we see a storm rolling in. If you're a young parent, or you have been a young parent, you know about the first night your baby sleeps through the night, you go, is it breathing? We have this anxiety because we know we don't even have the power to keep this small person alive. But God does. And God makes the world work regularly. And we take it for granted. We assume it will be cold in the winter and hot in the summer, that we'll be able to grow food in the ground next year. And this is only because of God's goodness, unchanging, loving kindness. Because if everything did indeed come by chance to you, there is no reason to assume anything tomorrow will be like anything like it was today. So creation, then, it reveals his generosity, his wisdom, his unchanging stability. He will keep his word. This is all to say creation shows us God's love. Out of his abundance of love, he created and gave you this gift. And his loving wisdom, it's a good gift. And out of his unchanging love, he continues to provide for you. Finally, Psalm 104, though, says, you must respond to him. All creation responds, and you must join in. If the creation is governed by and given to you by a loving king, you must respond to that creator. Look at how personal this response is in verses 31, 32, 33. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the smoke and they, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Here we see the results of God's created works. 
it manifests his glory. His creation brings him glory and brings him worship. This is, again, creation having a purpose. All things in creation, from the smallest of plants and animals, the most complicated astrological systems, human societies, exist to bring God glory. So the psalmist asks that this creation he so enjoys will endure. Foremost, because he wants God to rejoice in his works. The psalmist puts God's purposes and God's desires for creation above his own. Even though he loves creation, he wants it to endure so God will continue to take pleasure in it. We might say, creation exists so it will glorify God and so God can enjoy it forever. Yes, the purpose of creation is bringing God glory, but you must personally respond to God. The psalm ends as it began. The psalmist speaking very personally how I will sing, I will praise. The general goodness of creation is not enough. God has made each of you and takes care of each of you. Each of you are in a relationship with the Creator because, as we've noted at length, nothing exists independent of the Creator. Every minute of your life, you are in constant connection to him. The only question is, what kind of relationship do you have to the king? You live in his kingdom. You're protected by his power. You eat the bread from his table. But how do you respond to the king? Praise? Gratitude? Rebellion? Thanklessness? This is, of course, not a question for any of us to ask one time, but daily, as long as we live, as long as he provides us breath. Because as long as we live, he's providing us infinite reasons to praise him. But it's fascinating, we should note, that the, the prayer of the psalmist doesn't end there. It ends, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. And that Praise the Lord is hallelujah. He comes to the end with a hallelujah. But before he finishes praising God that way, he asks God to consume sinners and remove the wicked. It may seem strange why a hymn of just exuberant praise ends this way, kind of on a down note. Not many of our hymns, the hymns we sang this morning, end this way. But it's not really a low note, or at least it's not meant to be. First, it's a really important note of realism. Because even when we think of nature and creation and life at its best, we are all ultimately confronted with its fallenness. We are confronted with death, natural disasters, scarcity, decay, chronic pain, Human evil, our own sin that we can't master. We as Christians do not live for God's glory and according to his created order. And we know we live in a society that's in open rebellion against God's created order. So the psalmist doesn't say, just put on rose-colored glasses and pretend all of life is an idyllic Thomas Kincaid landscape. He says there is struggle here. 
There is toil in your work. There is evil. So he asked God to consume sinners and remove the wicked from the earth. He's asking God to destroy anything that would diminish creation from reflecting his glory. And this too then is a reason to praise God because God will restore his creation to its perfection, to what he made it to do. And sin and evil, though present in our lives and throughout all creation, can't thwart this purpose. The creation prepared for Jesus Christ will glorify him and will be renewed by him. You were created with such a purpose, and you must be restored to the king who made you. You must personally be restored to the king who made you. Because the purpose can't be stopped. God will enjoy his creation, and his creation will experience his love. And only Jesus can restore you out of your state of sin and misery to this, to a singing member of God's creation again. We might ask, how do we know? How do we know Jesus can do this for me? Verse 7 said above God, at his rebuke, the waters fled. When Christ was on earth, he rebuked a storm and it ceased. Why? Because it heard the voice of its creator. And so he has that power. He has that right to make you a new creation to honor our creator as king. To live abundantly in his world and under his provision. And to spend your days responding to him with praise. Christ has that power and that authority and most of all, that love. Let me close our time in prayer. Lord, you are our maker. You are our king. We thank you for the revelation of your love in creation. We thank you for the revelation of your love in Jesus. Restore us that we may sing to you all our days, that we may praise you and glorify you with the heavens and the earth. Hallelujah. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.